The Lifestylist, episode 12, featuring Tej Khalsa. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. If you're familiar with this show and my lifestyle recommendations, you know that I always recommend to only drink raw, pure, unadulterated spring water whenever possible. In order to do that, you have two choices. You can go to my friend Daniel Vitalis' site, findaspring.com, which is an amazing crowdsourced free site which helps you map out and find spring water locations all over the globe. If that's not feasible for you, and you live on the west coast of the United States, you can get your water from where I get it. And that's fountainoftruthspringwater.com. Now, if you order from Fountain of Truth and use the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout, you'll save 11% off your first order. Now, Fountain of Truth Spring Water delivers fresh, raw, cold spring water in glass bottles directly to your doorstep. You're not going to find that anywhere else. Trust me, I've looked. So go to fountainoftruthspringwater.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout, and save 11% off your total first order, including bottle deposits and stands. You, my friend, are listening to the Lifestylist podcast with Luke Story from LukeStory.com. Today's a very special episode for me because I get to bring directly to you one of my favorite people in the whole world, and that is Tej Khalsa. Tej is a master of Kundalini Yoga and a teacher with whom I've been practicing for the past few years. And I got to tell you, on any given day, you can find me from 9 a.m. till about 10.45 a.m., at her studio on Sunset and Crescent Heights. It's just something that's become such an integral part of my growth and evolution as a person, and it's a spiritual practice that I found to just be very beneficial in so many ways. So I loved getting the chance to sit down with Tage in this episode. You know, we started out by doing a little mantra. We lit a candle. We really just kind of bonded and looked in each other's eyes. And we just had a really special experience. Well, at least I did. You know, I can only, I can only hope that she did as well. But we broke down a lot of the science and history around this particular type of yoga, where she learned it, uh, what attracted her to it in the beginning, what it can do for you, what the mantras mean, what the breathing exercises mean, what they do. So it was a really fact-filled, informative talk, and we just went on and on. This is going to be probably a longer episode than you might be used to, but it was difficult to edit because there's just so much golden material brought forth. And what I really love about Tage, and what I'm sure you'll love too, is her irreverent, unpretentious, down-to-earth, heart-based delivery. She's just the real deal. I've been around a lot of spiritual teachers over the years, and she's one of my favorites because she's just no bullshit, and there's no other way to say it. So I'm looking forward to you hearing this episode. And once you've done that, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to this podcast so that every week you get it automatically downloaded to your app. Then go into iTunes, leave us a review, um, give us a rating so we can kind of know what you like to hear and what you don't. And then lastly, don't forget to go over to LukeStory.com, sign up for my newsletter so I can notify you when there's some news. 
Then you'll also want to check out the show notes under the podcast tab, because during this show, we give some great resources like we do in every episode. And that's an easy place for you to go just click through those links to different products and books and recommendations based on the interviews with our guests. So here we go into one more episode of The Lifestylist. Enjoy. Tej Karkalsa has been practicing kundalini yoga for over 35 years as taught to her by Yogi Bhajan. She is the custodian of the archives of the teachings of Yogi Bhajan and a recognized authority on kundalini yoga. She's edited and archived hundreds of hours of material and continues to teach in direct accordance to its original presentation. She holds a master's degree in counseling from USC and during the many years she worked on Yogi Bhajan's correspondence, she received extensive training from him on yogic counseling. She is also founder of Nine Treasures Yoga in West Hollywood, where she continues to teach classes and workshops. Her classes are occasions to enjoy deep meditative experiences and to learn vast amounts of yogic knowledge. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast, Tage. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here today, and I'm, I really just can't thank you enough for coming by the studio. Today was one of the rare days where I missed your morning class because I had to record another podcast, or I should say got to record another podcast this morning. So I plan on getting us out of here on time and going to the 615 class tonight. So Tage and I just did a little, what we call a check-in, which is a short mantra that we did before the show started. So we're all tuned up and ready to go. So I want to start by asking you, Tage, how did you come to find Kundalini Yoga? And where were you? How does that story unfold? Well, I grew up in a family that moved us everywhere around the U.S. because my dad knew how to tell oil companies where to drill for oil. That made him very popular. <laughs> and so they would just move him. They'd pay him a whole bunch of money, and he'd move us to a different state, into a town, rent a house. And then all of a sudden, he'd move us to the other place where he was building house, changing schools. So I went to almost 13 schools growing up. And by the time I got to be a high school student, I kind of went, it's not worth Because it was the days when you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have the cell phone, you couldn't call people. So I, I constantly was losing people, you know, that feeling. And it was sort of like death, you know, every six months or so. It was like a new kind of experience of being abandoned or abandoning things. Even our, our animals, we had to leave them a lot. And so, or they chose to, let's put it that way. And so I kind of thought when I was in high school, there's got to be more to life than just people and things and moving and people were fighting in my family and there were a lot of... I have an Irish family, you know, so you know what that means. <laughs> and I just kind of went, there's got to be more to life than this. I always had felt like that. And so I started studying anything I could get my hands on that was a different uh, type of psychology, anywhere from Buddhism to different religions, different Christian Christianity type things. And I went to a lot of different churches. I had friends that would just take me places. And I went to one that was in, a, in Denver in a church that was in a, a movie theater and it was a huge theater and i don't remember the name of it i wish i could because then you could go back there and find it but what they would do is they black the whole thing out and then just put the lights on the stage and so you kind of go into a trance and i would go into a trance every time i went with my friend her and her mom would take me and i thought this is cool but i'm not into this religion but i like the trance part <laughs> 
And then I thought, okay, then after a while I thought I'll try drugs. So I tried every drug that I could find once. And each time I did, I hated it. And I thought, I don't want to do this because it makes me feel out of control. Even one night I did one drug and I, I was so feeling trapped in it because there's like, I feel like there was spirits that trap you. And I just spent hours turning a light on and turning a light off, turning the light on and turning the light off. And I thought about it later, like, why did I do that? And it was so I wouldn't panic because I felt like something was controlling me. And that was the only way I could feel I, I was in control. The depth of me was in control. And then I remember several nights that I would have really big papers due in high school. So I would get up at, at three in the morning and write them. And there would be this huge flow that would come through me. And this is, I was just a kid, you know, a normal 15 year old kid from, well, at that point, Colorado. And after a while, I started thinking, there's something here about this hour in the morning. And I couldn't really figure it out, but whatever it was, I would light up huge. And then I'd become super creative and I would just start writing like crazy. And then I got all the straight A's and everything and the teachers were really like happy with me. And then they put me all into the advanced classes. And then I hated that because that felt like so much pressure. And so I had a lot of like conflict inside myself about who, who I was, like most of us when we're in high school. So then I went to, to USC to go to college. I drove out there with my father. He got a job teaching. He dropped me off at the dorm one day and just walked away. And, and he left all my stuff on the sidewalk and just drives off. And that was the last I saw him. And I had to make my way in with all the USC fraternity and sorority people who are rushing. You know what that means? It's like they're like applying for the sorority and fraternity. And all of them hated me because I didn't wear makeup and I didn't wear like my hair curl like they did in nylons and stockings because I had gone through that in high school and I thought I didn't want to be that way. So I was trying the hippie route, you know, you know, you try different things growing up. So one day I'm in my uh, social psychology class and the teacher at the at that time said, you know, there's a whole group of people that meditate and that are yogis and they know how to take their mind and they can train with their mind to the point that they can change things, they can move things. And I thought, and, and I mean, I, I know we've all had many lifetimes and something in my head go, went bing and I went, I have to do meditation. I have to do yoga. And so I walked out of the class and there was a piece of paper on, on a telephone pole and it said yoga as a form of therapy. And a guy was giving an experiment. He was getting his PhD in the education department, educational psychology or something. And he was doing a, a dissertation on how did a yoga class, a series, change a person. So he gave a personality inventory test to the people first. And then he gave the yoga class for three months to a group. And for three months, other people did not get it. At the end of three months, he gave both groups, the control group and the experimenti group, um, the, the test again. And I was in the one that got to take the, the yoga class. And it was a really big deal for me because I lived at USC. I was a kid in the dorm and I didn't have a car and the bus system wasn't that good. There was no Uber. So, and I didn't have any extra money, so I wasn't gonna be able to take a taxi. So I had to have somebody just drop me off places. So the night that the class started, a lady from my dorm, she just dropped me off and then she went to visit her parents or something. And I don't know why I was so brave, but some reason I was brave. 
And I walked up there with no idea how I was going to get back. It was really far from, it was at the ashram, which is kind of near Pico and Robertson area. And I walked up to the, the, the building and it was a little house, but a big open doors and windows. And they had Christmas lights around it because it was in January, beginning of January. And there were people running in and out with these floppy white clothes on and turbans. And I thought, oh my God, it's a cult. <laughs> That's all I could think. And I was flipping out inside. And I was going, no, no, I need to ride home. I need to ride home. I got to get out of here. And so I walked into the, the door where the lady was doing registration. I go, I need to ride home. And she goes, go talk to the teacher. The teacher's in the back of the room. He's bowing at the altar. Go back and talk to him. I go, okay. So I go back there and he's bowing and he's praying and I'm waiting and I'm thinking, I got to get out of here. These people are weird. They're going to try to convert me. And And all of a sudden he stands up and he turns around and looks at me and I'm probably like six, seven feet away from him. And out of the sky, something came and hit me right in the face really hard. And there was nothing there. I mean, it was one of those moments where like you, you would go, it's a UFO moment. You know, there it was something I couldn't see. Nobody could see. And I was so shocked that my mind shut up right away. And then I just was staring at it with my mouth open. <gasps> and he's like, yeah, he was so peaceful. He was a lawyer. I found out later. And he goes, may I help you? And I go, because <gasps> it was so scary. You know, here I was freaked out already. And then I was really goofy. I was very emotional. I didn't feel like I had any stability, you know. And so he I, he finally, like, just kept waiting. He kept looking at me. Yes, may I help you? He's so sweet. And finally I said, I need to ride home. And he goes, oh, yes, we'll ask people after class. They'll be very receptive. And I thought, oh, my God, I got to stay for class. <laughs> so I sat down at his feet, and I, I kept thinking about it. There was a teacher's bench there, and I sat down in front of it. And I kept thinking, some things want you to shut up and listen. So I'm going to do that. And I really, like, it's emotional. And this is a really good point to remember for people. Dealing with yourself or dealing with others. There's always, like, a really deep voice inside of us that knows what's going on. There is. And what I found from that experience and when I first met my teacher, Yogi Bhajan, who's brought Kundalini Yoga here, was that, no matter how emotional or how freaked out you seem or how scattered you may seem or like inconsistent in your word, it doesn't really matter. There's always a deep space in every person that knows what's going on. And if you can get to that space and just talk to it, I mean, well, like, like if I'm talking to you or I'm talking to another person, if you're talking to your child, like I found that with children especially, if you want to train children, especially from the womb, inside the womb even, if you want to train them to be the depth that they are, to live on this earth and spread that and talk from there, talk to it. And I'm telling you, it makes the world of difference. If I walk up to somebody on the street and I go to myself, they look like an idiot. They have blue hair and they have a big nose and they look like they have clothes that are like the punk rock, you know, whatever my criticism might be for the second. But if I, if I go past that, and if I look like right into their third eye, right into the soul, and I talk right there, there's a whole different experience that happens. And it gives that person a chance then to come forth from their spirit and talk to me. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in that first class, then you made a real contact with your own intuition, your own higher self, then sounds like said, all right, you're in the right place, like stay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, and it was dramatic because I mean, I was so dramatically upset about being in that room. And, and you know, sometimes our, our inside knows that when we are heading into something like this, that it's going to make a change in you that's going to be so huge that your whole life is going to be challenged, whatever you've done up to now, whatever belief system that you have. And so just the fact that you're going to grow into a whole new depth of you, a new identity, it can sometimes really, like your subconscious fear part will come up and go, no, get out of here. But, and I, I think there was part of that there and part of feeling not safe because I didn't know where I was. And I didn't know if I could handle myself in different situations. I think now, now these days that the internet, like I've seen that with kids. Now that the internet and the certain TV shows on Nickelodeon, that they're, they're showing people how to act and how to respond and how to be stronger, which is really cool because they didn't have that before. Like I remember watching one day that one of those old, what's that guy, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, and then also that the Twilight Zone, you know, they, those old shows. I remember watching a couple of issues, you know, and I remember thinking, wow, they just portray women as really stupid and really like dingy and really like fluttery and really emotional and out of control. And I thought, wow, you know, no wonder women's lib had to come up and women had to really stand up in their own power because this is ridiculous how it was, it was portrayed. But I, I feel like one day my daughter, you know, I was watching her and she's a very a, a deep soul that's the other thing, you know, if you, if you decide you want to have a child and bring a child onto the earth, the biggest thing you can do is start meditating and talking to the soul like years ahead of time and then get yourself ready, meditate, do yoga, get your mind like, so it's clear. Meditation is just basically clearing out the clutter so that the real part of you, the deep part of you can come up and can be projected and figured out how to put that into your life, you know, in any way. But for her, I started meditating for my daughter in when I was about 20, 21 or 22, something like that. And then I think I had her when I was about 36, 35. And let me ask you, I, I want to get a timeline on this from that first class. What year was that approximately? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. It was, I believe it was January 5th, 1973. Wow. So I was three years old when you were in your first yoga class. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I know. Okay. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And now, so that's, God, that's so many years. And, and I've been doing this. I know. Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot of people come and go. And I mean, I sat there and, and when I sat at that guy's feet that day and all, all the classes, so it was like three months, every Wednesday night for three hours, we would meet three, four hours, something like that. And yes, I did find someone to drive me home. And then she became like my person. And she drove me back and forth every week. She would pick me up at school and then drive me and then bring me back. It was really great. I still remember her. I don't know her, but I remember her. But um, I remember everything that guy said. I would make a decision to do what he said. Because I just decided, I'm going to try this. If you know, You don't often go into a place where something invisible hits you in the face. I mean, it, it was a big slap. I mean, seriously. And, it, and I had never had anything like that happen before. I was always like, I was pretty conservative for who, you know, who I was trying to be, you know, what I thought I was trying to be. But um, 
I mean, you know, you, you don't have something like that happen. So I kept saying to myself, shut up, just do what he says. And so one day he comes in and he goes, all right, from now on, you need to get up between three and six in the morning and go into a room and meditate after you take your cold shower. Now, I was a, a college student, but I wasn't the kind of party. I would go to the dorm, and, um, to the library and study till one in the morning, and then I would go back and sleep until like 11 in the morning. So suddenly, I'm coming in and I'm getting up at like three. I think I actually got up at about four, and I go take a shower, and then I go down to the pool room in the dorm, and I would do meditation. You'll think this is funny. You gotta hear this one. So one morning, I'm in this dirty pool room, right? It's a big, huge room. And I have the door shut and I'm sitting in the corner and I'm chanting that mantra and I'm, I'm sitting there, Ek Onkar Sat Nam Siddhi Wahe Guru. And all of a sudden the door slams open, the light goes flooding. I look up and there's the Rentikov, whatever they call him, the dorm guy. And he's got his gun pointing at me. And I look at him, I was really calm. I go, I'm meditating. And he goes, oh. And he puts his gun back in his holster. And he looks at me. And I go, can you shut the light off and shut the door on the way out? And he goes, and then I said, and I'll probably do it again tomorrow. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, getting busted for being spiritual. So... I, it's funny, just right when you just even gave that little bit of a mantra, that's one of my favorites. And I swear, you know, I had just a feeling from you just doing that. And this is, I think this is the magic of Kundalini Yoga and why I'm just continually drawn deeper and deeper into it. So from your first exposure and following your intuition, you were led down this path to the point now where, I mean, I, I've taken classes from other people here and in New York, and you're just my personal favorite. Everyone has their teacher, you know, and you're the one that I like. And I have an effect from your classes that's unlike any other type of yoga or even any other kundalina that uh, kundalini classes that I've taken. And it just is such, such a profound effect on me that I'd like to be able to share with people from your perspective you know, what is kundalini yoga, if you could describe that, and, and how might you describe its difference between other types of yoga, like, you know, ashanga, hatha yoga, things that I've, you know, experimented with, which were much less involved in mantras and chanting and music, and were more about sort of stretching and have been westernized to the point where they're more of kind of exercise and stuff that you would do at a gym. Whereas to me, in your classes, I have experiences where I'm so full of gratitude after we do a particular meditation or mantra where I'm just crying uncontrollably or it'll be in the middle of the class. And I'm not, I mean, I'm emotional and I'm pretty in touch with my feelings, but I'm also able to regulate them and, and kind of control them to appropriate venues and times. But in, in your classes, there's something that happens like that, or I'll just, you know, just have you know, tears of joy and gratitude, or I'll, I'll find some hidden reserve of pain that I thought that I had dealt with in therapy in high school. I mean, things that I thought I was so past and another stack, another layer of that stack gets revealed and, and healed in the class. So what is Kundalini Yoga? Well, first of all, the history part of it is that, you know, I have a spiritual teacher who is no longer in his body, very, a, a master, like beyond the beyond. And, um, I think many, many people that have known him would agree with me. 
that that were that studied under him. There was no one like that. I mean, it was amazing. He was so in command of the energy, and he was so like insightful. He could see right into you. He could see your past, your present, your future. But he also knew how to respond. He didn't talk about it. It's not like he just walked around to anybody in the world and said, this is going to happen to you, that's going to happen. He wasn't insecure. He was just being led and guided by the huge infinite spirit that that provided his destiny through him. And I feel like as he got older, older even, he became less and less there and the spirit flow was just so huge. But he was. he said he was in India and he was studying with his teacher. He was sent to study, study with his teacher, which I have a picture of his teacher on my website. You look at that picture, the eyes, like, I mean, it was, it's intense. And his teacher was so harsh. He went there to study with him when he was seven. And he was a very wealthy kid. They had a, a village that his parents were in charge of. It was in Pakistan. And then later when the partition happened, everybody had to leave the village because they were Sikhs, you know. But, um, they, I think that from the day he was born, they knew he was a saint. They knew it. They said that there was a, a mark on his foot, the bottom of his feet, that showed that he was saint, a saint. I even have a picture of his feet right inside my door. A little kid came to my house one day, and she just stood there staring with her mouth open. And I said, what? She goes, why do you have a picture of someone's feet? <laughs> I started laughing. Well, because it's the sole, you know, the bottom of the feet. Often, you know, they say if you touch the, the sole or the foot of a holy person and then put that energy on your forehead, it'll change your whole destiny. So a lot of times I touch the feet, the picture, and I just put it on my forehead just to, to like, let's have an upgrade. Why not, you know? Anyway, so he went to study with that teacher when he was seven. They had put given to different teachers, but that one in particular was um, a, like a, a live-away school. They called it a guru cool. And there were like boys that studied there, lived there, and they did a lot of yoga and meditation all day long. And it was a very harsh training. And sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll be in a yoga position or in a meditation, and Yogi Bhajan would say, yeah, my teacher put us in that posture for six hours. And he said, don't go out of it till I come back. Six hours later, he'd come back and they had kids with sticks that would hit you if you went out of it. And he'd laugh. He goes, I can't do that to you guys because I'd get arrested here in the U.S. <laughs> but he stayed with that, that place until he was about 16. And, he, when he, and the teacher tested him like crazy. And then one day he was 16, the teacher called him in and all the people in the school, the kids were like, whoa, you're not, I mean, they had like a, a ritual. You only could go see him every 12 years and it wasn't time for him. So he walked in and the teacher goes, Budgen, because his name was Yogi Budgen and he called him Budgen. He goes, you're the master. And the Yogi Budgen said this beautiful statement, which I think is really important for people. He accepted it. He didn't go, no, not me. He just went, yes, sir he was trained to disagree with the teacher. And when you agree right in front of a teacher, half the energy will just come into you. And then he, the, the man said to him, and never lay your eyes on my fa face again. And, and Yogi Bhajan said that was so painful because he loved that teacher so much. But you have to love your teacher. You have to have trust and faith in your teacher. If you don't, it's really hard to learn. Let the energy download. It's, this is a this is a world not of learning. It's a learn of a world of transference mostly. 
And you get the energy, the knowledge, the wisdom transferred to you. You understand by the openness. Yeah, I, I've experienced that. Yeah. So I, I've wondered about that because, you know, you you talk about Yogi Bhajan a lot in class and, and tell some of the stories of the origin. And what's always fascinating to me is that there are so many Kriyas. There's so many meditations, so many mantras, so many exercises. Like I've been going to your class for four years. And, and this is an interesting thing that I've noted in every single class, and this is three, four, sometimes five days a week, and plus workshops and stuff that I personally have gone to that you've taught. And in every single class, there's at least one Kriya that I've never done before. I mean, it's like seemingly an endless reservoir of knowledge that's been passed down. And I always wonder, did he retain all that? Or do you think that he intuited some and was downloaded some of those those Kriyas, you know, as an adult and even after he came here. I mean, in other words, like, was he just, for lack of a better term, making some of that stuff up? I honestly, um, I think about this myself because I'm an archivist, you know, and he used to say that, like, okay, so after he left the teacher, then he went back to his village, and the partition happened and they had to leave really fast because the Muslims were coming in to take over the country and they were going through and they were burning down any villages that weren't of their faith. And so he he and his family had like had to take the whole village and get out of there like when within three, four hours. They had to take every single thing they could and just leave. And so they became paupers at that point. And so then he went on to um, become, you know, get jobs and, and become educated in the university and stuff. And finally he ended up working in a governmental job where he could actually they were patrolling the Himalaya, Himalayan mountains and different area, the borders. So he said that they would go up into the Himalayas. He would take his little team up there and they'd find these old yogis and they would just like take down every meditation they could find. So he had a lot, I think he had a lot through his teacher and then he gained a lot. But the, the more interesting thing to me I mean, I know we may seem like we're losing the timeline, but I'm not. I'm I'm focusing here. Um, but there was a lady, you know. So then we then he came here finally. He came to the to Canada to teach in the university there. But on at the time when the guy that gave him the job was supposed to pick him up and put him into the job and teach in, in uh, I think it was in Toronto, and the guy died. He was killed in a car accident. So Yogi Bhajan ended up having all of his. Uh, uh, luggage stolen, which had a lot of wealth in it, he said. And he had given his coat to somebody and they gave him like a, a robe on first class. The guy had flown him out first class. And they took his shoes away. You know how they do in first class? They'll give you your, somebody stole his shoes, his coat, all his luggage. So he said, here I am in the freezing winter in the airport in Toronto with just like a first class, you know, robe on those little slipper things they give you. And no money, nothing. I had $35 in my pocket, he said. This is like in the 60s. So it, it was when people were a little more innocent, they didn't think people would steal stuff like that. And then uh, he said he just sat there. And then finally somebody figured it out. They gave him $25 for all the stuff that he lost, which is insane. And then they found a relative who let him stay there and they didn't really want him there. They put meat in his food, he said, and put him in the basement. And he said, I, I had to begin all over again. And so he made his way to the U.S. at some point because he started teaching yoga and they invited him down here. And then he saw the hippies. He said, I saw the people that I used to see in India at the airport. 
And he goes, and I see them, I go, I know I can help them because they'd come in with a lot of money and really a big hope. And I'm going to meet the guru and I'm going to become enlightened. And then they come back six months later with dragging their tail between their legs. No money, no uh, enlightenment, just kind of dirty. And then they have to go back home and start over. And he goes, I finally found the people. He goes, I knew I could help them. So he started teaching a lot here. And one of the things that I saw, and I thought it was really interesting, he's talked a lot about the Akashic Records, how there's a, a wealth of knowledge in the universe. And every time you say something, every time you think something, every time you like act out something, it actually goes into your Akashic Record file. And it kind of forms you, and it's really hard to get rid of it. That's why people, they don't understand the value of the spoken word. Like you can form your mind and your consciousness. You can also get locked into something by the words you choose and the emotions that you express to people. But now in his case, what I thought was interesting was I have a friend that she's, she's like 70 something. And I remember one day she was at women's camp and she was standing at the back of the women's camp. We used to have women's camp in New Mexico under this huge tent and women would come from all over the world and he he'd train them, he'd teach them. And he did it because he said, women are the holder of the energy for the family, for the children coming in. They help husbands, they hold them, they can mold them. You know, he told us that men are moldable. You can like take your energy, project it into their third eye point and you can actually make them great. Like look at Ronald Reagan, you know, without Nancy, where would he have been, you know? Anyway, so she was standing there watching him and she said suddenly, like she could see stuff, like oddly she could see, she seems really normal, like a really normal weird lady, but she would see stuff. <laughs> and she said, so I'm standing there and I'm guarding, she was guarding the place because they had people that would guard, because you never know, you know, you have people running and do weird stuff. So she's watching him speaking and all of a sudden she saw this line of energy, like a ticker tape coming along, coming right over his head, dropping down into the top of his head and coming out of his mouth. And she goes, like, I could see the words ahead of time what he was going to say. And she goes, that must be the Akashic Records. And I think there's a whole, like, that's what's so cool about now. Like before we used to, in the Piscean age, you'd have to be like, there's somebody that's got the channel open and it's not us. And we're gonna go find that person. And now it's becoming in this Aquarian age as it's coming in, it's that the knowledge wants to download through us. We just have to clear ourselves out. And that's where the Kundalini yoga comes in. Now I'm going to go back. Am I speaking too much? No, it's wonderful. Okay. Thank it's you. It's great. I, if, if you need to interject, please shut me up. <laughs> oh, I love it. This is, this is what I'm after is really, you know, finding out where this came from and how it works because it, it clearly does. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it's the change that I've seen in myself and in other people is just incredible. So it's it's so fascinating to me to find out how this came to be and, you know, how it entered your life is what we started with. But like, what is the deal with this? You know, it's just, it's such a curiosity to me because it's so powerful and so profound. It is. It really is. Okay. So what he's told us is that you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, there was a time frame called, and you can look this up in a wiki, Wikipedia, shockingly enough. <laughs> I found it one day and I went, huh, Wikipedia. So they call it the Yugas. And it's a time frame of the entire earth and, and beyond infinity. And they say that we were in a time frame 
it's kind of like I've seen a picture of it. It kind of looks like a clock, you know, around. And then the first 15 minutes, they called it the Satyug. It's where the golden age was. And everybody who was in that space was like enlightened and awake and beautiful and peaceful and like expanded. And that's when they said they made the yoga. The masters at that time put together the science of the yoga in the Kriyas so that it would be available for now when we're making the change that we're going into our next phase. So this is how it went. Sat Yug, golden age, everybody aware. Then you have the silver age. That's the next 15 minutes. People are becoming less aware, a little more dim, but they're still aware. Now the next 15 minutes, like from 1230 to 1245, let's say, that you have the place where it becomes bronze and it becomes like dimmer and darker. And then the last phase, the black, the Kali Yug. Kali means black. And that's what we're in these last 15 minutes. And the problem is, is this where everybody's dim, everybody's like, like greedy and on them, on each other. And like the, the dark values prevail. And we're at the, the place now where we're making a transition from the dark age back to the golden. And so my teacher predicted, and, and I remember reading this when I was in, I lived in my first ashram down on 53rd and Broadway, down in, you know, down in the, the you know, on the way to Watts, let's put it that way. And the reason I lived there was because I could take a bus from USC that right straight down and it went right in front of the house. I went right in and I wanted to do this one mantra that they said, if you do it, you can become a teacher. And I had decided I have to be a teacher because there's too many people that are mixed up. I was studying counseling and at USC, that's what I was studying. So he, I remember sitting in that ashram and I found this old book and I started reading it, like one of the old publications. And they said in it, they go, in this time of the, the transition from the dark age to the white light age, there is going to be a big fight between the two forces. I mean, you know, at that point I was reading that going, going yeah, yeah, okay. I was like 18, 19. Uh-huh. But he said, you're gonna start seeing a lot of mass shootings you're going to see people that will, and this is one that I think is really interesting. He said, people will just be sitting on their couch and they'll leave their body for three days and then they'll suddenly come back and they won't know what happened. They, they'll check out. He said, you'll see your friends who've been your friends for years. All of a sudden, they just turn down a road and they're totally against you. He said, you're going to see a lot of betrayal between people. And he said, at this point, we have to be really, really conscious and strong and not reactive and not uh, let our nervous system take over and throw us off balance. And I've been watching this a lot. Just even before I came here, I got into my apartment and there is neighbors. That, I mean, I live in a really conservative Jewish neighborhood. And these neighbors came out and this one guy was screaming hysterically and about to kill somebody. I mean, literally. And then he got in his car and he revved off and it sounded like um, I, all I did was pray. I just prayed save him and help him not save, not hurt anybody. But Yogi Bhajan said that those wise ones in the first golden age, they actually got the yoga ready for us for now so that we can align ourselves with the light, with the golden force and be able to receive the energy that's coming in. Now, if you study, there's this man in Sedona and he's, I, I don't. I never say his name right, so please forgive me. But it's Drum Valo. Do you know that man? Yeah. Yeah, and he talks a lot about how there's a Kundalini energy of the earth, and there's a Kundalini energy of the ethers, and they're starting to line up now. 
So the heavens is lining up with the heavenly energy of the earth and it's starting now to download things because it's in alignment, all right? So that's why crystals are starting to activate. So if you go into my place or if you go to Hedy Jewin's place, we have crystals, like tons of crystals. That's why people are getting into them because it's actually a place where you can pull the energy in. But what's more important is us. Now, this is what the Kundalini is all about. It's to take you... See, like you're a crystal. Your mind was given as a gift to be able to go back to God in a split second. Like there's that story Yogi Bhajan says. He goes, the soul was with God. Everything was just one. And then God got bored and he says, I'm going to make matter. I'm going to make humans. I'm going to make life force. And the soul is like crying, no, I don't want to be separated. And so God said, well, no, I'm going to do it. But I'll give you the gift of the mind. And you can take your mind and beam it into me anytime you want. And that's a beautiful thing to know. The mind can be used to activate a negative side of you. And that's why you'll see in the media, people activate the fear side of people, the insecure side, like go back in the box and hide type attitude. But the mind through the, there's a lot of tech, tech, techniques and tactics out there now. They're helping the mind to clean itself, to clear itself, to find its own power and to beam out to infinity and make that link. And it's so huge. When you can do that, you can stand invincible. You can stand with your auric field open and bright and beautiful. And the Kundalini Yoga is all about that. It's just, it's tools. It's tools to be able to activate the sacred force that is in everybody. And I, I think that like, sometimes I'll talk to people and I can give them advice and they understand me because when I'm around them, I can activate their kundalini. I just can't. I don't know. It just happens. I mean, I can like pull it up. I can look into you like right now. I was watching you before your whole auric field was opening. It was changing. The room became white. And it was like uh, beaming into you. And your whole third eye point, you know, has like a, a, a triangle on it right now. So it's very activated. I mean, you can start to see things like that after doing the kundalini yoga. But you have to be a sincere practitioner. Like you have to decide without your ego, I'm just going to allow whatever the God's grace is to come through me. Whatever my destiny is, please send that to me so that I can fulfill it. We all have a mission. But I'll tell people, I'll go, you have to meditate and you have to come to class. Because the Kundalini Yoga is something that when you do it with the love for the teachings and the teacher and the flow through the teacher, then it, it will be received. I mean, Yogi Bhajan, when his teacher told him he was a master of Kundalini Yoga, I mean, you know, you, you got to know that he understood the energy. And that's what this is all about. And he told us, I mean, I mean, I think it, it was incredible when he told us that, that Kundalini Yoga is the, the mother of the yogas in a way. And it involves chanting, it involves rhythm, it involves, um, you know, focal points, angles and triangles when we say angles and triangles it really is i mean it's everything's physics do you know what i mean that's how i think about it all the time i think everything's physics how you move your eyes how you look how you move your body how you hold yourself i mean if you're really depressed and you're holding your body forward and then you decide i i gotta feel better if you just hold your body straight you pull your spine up, you pull your shoulders back, you pull your neck tall, your whole entire aura can open. And so it's, it's really a, a matter of like learning the energy and the Kundalini gives it to you on all levels. But over the years, some people took different parts of it and they made things like the Hatha Yoga. 
and they took different limbs of it and they just focused on that. And so, I mean, respectfully, that's it's beautiful. But Yogi Bhajan told us one day, he goes, you can do one posture in Kundalini Yoga and then you can do it like for 40 days or 90 days. And he goes, it will be the same as in a different practice doing three, four years or something. And so he said, it's a matter of how do you want to go to New York? Do you want to get from here to New York on a donkey or do you want to take a jet plane? And that's really what, what it is. Because once the Kundalini energy can increase the heat in the lower chakras, get the spine elongated and going, the energy moving up it through the different postures, doing the different locks that we do. If you can then take it through and then there's certain buns, like we have a bun, a lock in the lower chakras, one in the heart and one at the third eye, when they can be broken through and the energy can be moved out, moved out to the aura, you can merge. But it's it's got to be slow, slow, steady, wins the race. Because there's two problems. Some people want to go like really fanatical and fast, and I've seen that. I've also been, you know, guilty of that where, you know, you just go crazy wanting to meditate and do yoga all the time. And then you can, and, and sometimes that's appropriate. Like there are periods of time, like let's say you go on a retreat somewhere and you like do a cleanse and you wash your body and like you discipline yourself and you go into silence. You know, there's times when we do that, but some people want to just like be enlightened tomorrow. You can't, it's got to be a slow and steady movement. And I don't think we should ever, this is a point I wanted to make. We should never criticize somebody else's spiritual path. One of the base feelings that I got, reason I became uh, a Sikh, which I am, S-I-K-H, Sikh, you know, is because the base foundation was there's one creative spirit that runs through everybody. And everybody has a different way of expressing their love for God, for their spirit. And everyone is to be respected. And there was even, um, an, one of, we have a, a series of 10 gurus, and the ninth one was named Guru Tegh Bahadur. And he actually stood up for religious freedom for everybody. And he went to the, the there were a bunch of uh, people that came to him one day from different religions, and they said the emperor in Delhi is killing everybody if they won't convert to being a Muslim. And he said, they said, please go there and then t tell them to stop killing people. And then Guru Tegh Bahadur said, he won't listen to me. Why should I go? And his young son, who was nine at the time, sat next to him and said, Father, you're the only person that can have any influence at all. The only person. I mean, they were vicious. They would just like go down the street and then they would like just chop people's heads off and then feed their blood to the, the dogs. And it, it was just like if somebody looked at them funny or if they spit on somebody and they flinched, they'd kill them. And it was very, very vicious. So he did. Guru Tegh Bahadur went down there. He took a procession and he got to Delhi and they immediately put him in a little cage and they, you know, squished him down. And he arrest, they arrested three of his main devotees and they tortured them to death. One of them, they put on a log and they sawed him in half. And the guy just chanted Jepji. I'm sure the Guru put the energy. That's what I'm talking about. The transference is so beautiful. If you can have the transference from a saint like that through you, you can go through anything beyond time and space. Most people will have a transference because they look to celebrities or they look to people who are wealthy or they look to somebody in the in crowd. They look to somebody who's limited and then they try to get the transference from that. 
and they don't realize their spirit is unlimited. It's beyond the beyond. If you can look to an unlimited, enlightened spiritual force and then go in love with that and then let it come through you, you can become so much huger than anything you can ever imagine. Then you're not afraid anymore. I think that's something that really attracts me about the Kundalini yoga and uh, the tradition is that while you respect the teacher, you respect the guru, you don't follow the guru. You follow the teachings, not the teacher. Yeah. And that's, see, that really resonates with me because throughout all of my spiritual seeking over all these years, uh, you know, I've innocently been duped on a few occasions by following people that didn't mm, turn out to be who they appeared to be and who they represent themselves to be. I mean, I've been to India and spent thousands of dollars to become enlightened. I mean, it's embarrassing to like admit, but it was part of the journey. You know, I had this very pure intention of, of wanting to evolve and wanting to grow, but been, you know, been misled on, on numerous occasions. And so that's, you know, something that I've really uh, resonated with that you'll talk about where you're like, yeah, there's a respect for the teacher and there's a reverence for the fact that they're being used as a channel, but there's a definite position that they are a channel. They aren't the source of the energy, right? It's a really tricky one. Um, what you're saying, and it's a really good point. You know, the first time I ever met Yogi Bhajan, I was, you know, still dressed all in blue and hippie hair and all that stuff. And I was sitting in the middle of the ashram and he came in to teach class and everybody else was at that point in white and their turbans on and stuff. And I didn't even know what that was. And he stopped and he looked straight at me and I said mentally to him, I mean, this is where another one of those things where you know that the depth of a person is in there, even if they, they don't show it on top, you know? And I, I mentally looked at him and I said, mentally, I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you believe or what you stand for but I'm going to listen to you really carefully and I'm going to decide. And he, he looked at me right in the eyes and he shook his head. Yes. And then he walked and he taught his class and the whole time he was teaching, I went, I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree with that. I like that. That's really deep. That's beautiful. And then when class was over, he came back and he stood in the same place and he looked at me again. And I said to him mentally, I like what you said, and I will follow the teachings, but I will not follow you as a man. I will follow the teachings. And he shook his head big with a smile, and then he walked out. That was our introduction. But it, it's, a, it's a tricky thing, though, because, you know, first of all, you know, Guru Gobind Singh was the 10th Sikh master, and he was a culmination of all the wisdom of all the, the masters, like the, the Dalai Lama ship. The energy is passed from one body to another, and that's how the Guru ship was. And at the end, he handed it over to the high sound current, the word, which is a very hard concept for us to understand because we're not that subtle yet, but we're getting there. And I think a lot of people are getting more subtle now. But he's, he has this, they say this, they go, Guru Gobind Singh, Ape Guru Chela. He's the student and the teacher. He's the guru and the student. I mean, it's like you don't stop. Yogi Bhajan told us that once. He goes, you never stop growing. Now, what I've seen, though, out of, I mean, this is where the pitfall comes in, if I may. May I? Yeah, please. I love it's it. It's super important. And I watch it, like, constantly. It's like, if you want to stay on your own spiritual path, you have to stay humble. You have to stay humble. Did I say it? Okay? Because as soon as you start getting egotistical, like, I know everything. Like, that's why I try not to criticize. 
because I could easily fall into the trap because the higher you go, the more people you see around you that look really stupid. You know what I mean? And then you have to go, wait, that spark of light is in everybody and everybody has to have a chance. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We're not here as we grow into our wisdom to become like dictators. That's what we've been trying to get away from, isn't it? Yeah. Is that what you feel like you've tried yeah. to get away from? You know? Well, it's the, whole, it's the whole spiritual ego, which is such a paradox. And, and this has happened to me, too, in, in the early stages of, you know, my, my own uh, <laughs> spiritual adventures is you, you, you get some spiritual downloads, some spiritual apprehension and some grace. And, and unknowingly, the ego sneaks in there and starts taking credit for that spiritual understanding or, or perhaps the ability to help people with their problems or you are being used as a channel and able to transmit spiritual energy and it's pure and it's true and it's real and it's love. But the ego is so cunning that at times I think it gets in and, and grabs people. And this is the case of the fallen guru where maybe a teacher started out at a really high spiritual level. And then over time, the ego sort of co-opted their spiritual power and took credit for it. And then you have someone who becomes, a you know, like a power seeking controlling or someone that's just interested in amassing wealth and becoming a leader and having, having a name being famous yeah it's it's a really tricky thing it's that it's the spiritual ego and 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 then i've i've noticed that then other egos are attracted to that spiritual ego in the quote-unquote spiritual teacher you know who's sitting up there on the pillows with the robes and this whole big kind of theatrical display of quote-unquote spirituality and, and i think a lot of people that are more pragmatic and maybe realistic about things, see through that and and dismiss a lot of valid spiritual teachings and spiritual people because from the outside it looks like, ah, they're one of those charlatans, you know, they're one of those fakes, those snake oil salesmen because of the dress and the music and, you know, politics. Yeah, some of the customs that go along with that. So it's I think it's really important for people to know because God, if if you would have told me back in the early days, hey, Luke, you know, be careful, watch out for your own spiritual ego, because it's coming. There's a stage that you go through where... You wouldn't have heard me. <laughs> Probably not. It's something I had to go through. And I also had to be duped as a devotee of people that were fake. I mean, I've been to fake gurus and given them my money and time and, and devotion and found out later, like, wow, they really weren't the real deal. They knew the language. They knew the posturing, they knew the history, they knew the traditions, they maybe knew some mantras, they knew some yoga, they knew a meditation, but they didn't have it in their heart. It was all words. It was all on the surface. I think what you said, though, you made a really valid point. I think it's really important is that no matter who you study with, there's going to be something in there that's good. Do you know what I mean? There's going to be some wisdom. Like if you decide to go to a college, you know, like, like I went to that college, USC, for six years, you know, and some of the teachers that I studied from were really like out to lunch. And there was like one, the one guy that told me about yogis and meditation, all that. He actually was sleeping with all these different girls in the room and all the girls had crushes on him. And he was really like, you know, like a posturing, like handsome professor boy, you know, that was taking advantage of all the girls. But he said that thing, he taught that thing. And I, and I, it, it went inside me and I heard it. And so wisdom can come from anywhere. You can be watching TV and have a commercial come on. These days, especially, people are coming up with really cool stuff in the middle of trying to sell you like 
Cheerios or something. <laughs> and conversely, and this is something we we talked about in in a, a previous talk that you and I had, is that something that's been really strange to me is when you have a spiritual teacher and they are spiritually gifted and they have a real teaching and they have a power to do that transmission and give you that download. But at the same time, they also have a very legitimate dark side and they still have an ego and they're still a human. And and I've had those experiences where I know the transformation that's taken place in me from being in the presence of certain people and following their guidance has absolutely transformed my life. But I've also found that behind that was some really dark shit. And, and it took me a long time in certain cases to see that, but that didn't negate the spiritual power that they had. It's just, they had a light and dark side. And at certain points that dark side started to prevail. And at that point I, I would realize it and thankfully bow out of that relationship and realize that they had taken me as far as they could take me. And I was ready to go further. Yeah. I think that's important. What you just said about, um, people can take you a certain, like I've been to healers before or a therapist once that. I went to her for an issue and she was like so perfect. And then maybe a year later I went to her with a different issue and she couldn't figure that one out at all. And I realized, oh, you know, she's like useless on that level. And I never went back to her because I got what I needed from her. And so it's it's a matter of like using your own internal guide to hear what do I need now? It's kind of like, you know, sometimes you'll need certain vitamins or you'll need certain foods. Sometimes you need to eat soft food to let the stomach relax or even fast a little bit. There'd be other times when you need to like stop eating meat, but you need to eat a lot of other stuff. You know, like you have to have that intuitive knowing inside of you, but the, but the guiding link always has to be that you're connected to your higher self and you want to grow that way. And so there's a humility and a humbleness between you and that. And that you're you're bowing before a higher guru teacher in the ethers that's related to you, that's directing you, and that's why you know they'll say in India they also um, they talk about having a guru. People will ask you who's your guru, and they'll go I don't have one, and they'll go Oh my God you're you're cursed, and they'll run away from you. These are stories that Yogi Bhajan have told us. Like there was the third Sikh guru was called Guru Amardas and he was quite elderly and he was a very successful businessman and had a lot of money apparently. And uh, one day he was listening and he heard this prayer outside and somebody was reciting it on a rooftop. You know, people in India sit on rooftops a lot. And he was like, oh. and he had just been told like, you know, before that, who's your guru? And he said, I don't have one. And the person was like, oh my God, you're disgusting. He was very devoted, you know, to Hindu practices and all kinds of stuff, but he didn't feel like there was any guru that he had. So he heard that, that sound current and he ran to find that person it happened to be a relative of his. And she said, it, it's a, it's from Guru Nanak, it's Japji. And he goes, who wrote it? He goes, well, she says, well, you know, he did, but he's not alive anymore. His, his successor, Guru Angad, is alive. And so this man went and found him. Now, he, he was elderly, and the Guru that he found was like half his age. And he served him so devotedly. And then one day the, the second Guru was dying, and he gave him the Guruship. He passed it to this elderly man. And it was funny because... They say that uh, every year the, the second guru would give him a turban and say, don't take it off till I tell you. So every year he'd get a, another turban. He'd keep putting it off. He never took his turban off. So when they they went and they well, they do a special ceremony when one of the next guru is assigned, 
and uh, they take off his turban, they wash his hair, they put on clean clothes, and they said his head was like full of sores because it had been 13 years. He had never oh taken God. the turban off. But I mean, that's like the devotion, the depth of the devotion. I think that's why that happened. On that note, that's something actually I wanted to ask you about is how does Sikhism, there's three parts. How does Sikhism relate to Kundalini Yoga? And how does the wearing of a turban relate to yoga and Sikhism? And also the predominant use of white clothing. Where do, where do those three traditions kind of intersect? Okay, so if I go on a secular level, when we do the kundalini yoga, and I found this when I was, you know, first taking my teacher training, and I didn't wear a turban or anything then, the top of my head became so open. Like, you know that mantra we just did that you like, the ek onkar, satnam siddhi, wahey, guru. See, I can make your whole tenth gate open from it. Can you feel it? Because I did it, I did it 40 days in a row for two and a half hours at that point. And I kept focusing on my 10th gate and going out the entire time. And suddenly my 10th gate was so open that I can leave in a second. You know, I can just go, go away. I can listen. And then I come back in the body. And you can transfer that energy to other people. You open your aura like that, it goes to other people. But what I found was that being in the sunlight and being out in all the energy running around and stuff scattered that um, if I didn't have my head covered and my hair contained, I became really like out there. I couldn't focus. Does that make sense? So what we're doing is we're activating a really strong spiritual essence in us. We're pulling it up through the chakras, through the Kundalini yoga. We're clearing the chakras. The energy can then go freely. Whatever, let's say, mental patterning from pain or whatever you went through as a child, the programming, and it locked the chakras down certain places. Like, you know, let's say you're in a family that I had this one lady told me everybody in her family had ovarian cancer and they all died from it. You know, can you imagine like what was that strain of energy that was passed down from grandmother to mother to sister to cousin to aunt, everybody in her family had died of it. So she was here in the U.S. and all of a sudden she's doing Kundalini Yoga and she has a 12-year-old kid and her husband's left her. She's alone. She was from Russia. And she says to me, this happened. Everybody died of it. Now I have it. And I said to her, are you doing your yoga? Yeah. Are you doing your chemotherapy and radiation? Yes. I go, good. I'm going to the ashram. I'm going to pray for you. So every Wednesday night for probably a year, I would go to the ashram and I would pray for that lady. And, you know, it's been like the kids are now like, 30 something. She has a master's degree. Everybody's fine. That lady lived through it. And I think it's the grace of her doing her yoga, the energy coming through. And then there's a, another element of the, the mystery of the ethers where Guru Ramdas, we call him, he appeared to, to Yogi Bhajan one day and gave him that mantra, Guru Guru Wahi Guru, Guru Ramdas Guru. And he said, have your students practice this and any Kundalini Yoga student who needs my help have him practice this mantra and call me, I'll come help. So so first of all, I, I think that everybody, once they start practicing Kundalini Yoga, especially when they meditate, they need to cover their head somehow. And I don't care how beanie, a baseball cap, it really doesn't matter. Well, I remember you you emphasized that in class yesterday, and luckily I had a hoodie on, so so I did that. But I, I've never just had the chance to actually ask you what that's all about. So it, it's about really containing this energy that you're setting loose 
so that it physically doesn't actually escape your body. It, that's part of it. And then part of it that when the center, like the 10th gate, when my 10th gate opened, it got really sensitive. If I would go on the sun, it was painful, you know, really painful. Um, I actually, there's a girl that wrote this bumper sticker for me. <laughs> it's hysterical. Because I said it in class one day, I go, if you see me driving without a turban, you should probably like go away. <laughs> it could be dangerous. <laughs> You'd be like, I might not be in my body at the moment. So <laughs> who's driving the car? So she made a bumper sticker and it goes, if driver is without turban, beware. <laughs> awesome. I have it in my living room. I think it's so funny. And then what about the use of white clothing when okay so it you know the white is all colors you know it, white contains all colors and it actually um it, it builds like a foot radiance around you so everything has a radiance everything because everything's full of electron and proton and neutron that's vibrating at a certain frequency like a rock even has an auric field around it it's short shorter and smaller than maybe like you know, a cat. And then a cat's is less than a human. A human has the ability to have an auric field that goes at least nine feet in both all directions around you. And you want that. You want a really strong auric field around you. It is your shield. It's your protection. And so when you wear white, no matter how much your auric field is, it will add a foot to that. So if you're in a really crappy mood and your auric field shrunk down to like two feet, then you can put white clothes on and it'll it'll brighten you up. I remember one time we had uh, taken, we took about, I don't know how I got involved with this, but we took about 15 little three-year-old, two and three-year-olds down to go camping in Ramona for a weekend. And I thought, oh, well, I'm gonna be out like, you know, in the in picking up little kids out of the dirt and they're running around the forest and all that. So we went to a campsite and we had taken through like walking in the forest and all that. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to make myself a blue dress and then I'm going to wear a Navy blue turban so it won't pick up dirt. Well, cause you know, blue is part of our tradition. The warriors would wear it. Right. So, so I go and I put it on and I'm taking care of the kids and I start getting the worst migraine headache and I start throwing up and I realize. I can't wear blue. I can't wear anything but white. And after that, I never wore anything but white. Somebody came in my house one day and she runs in, she runs into my closet. She goes, I knew it all white. And I go, what do you think? This isn't like, this isn't a joke. <laughs> You're not like putting on a costume to go teach a yoga class. And then you, you go out wearing like leather pants and like a cowboy shirt at night or something. Yeah. And then what about what about the relationship between Sikhism? You know, I've been in like New York City and being driven around in a cab and the guy appears to me to be someone of the Sikh faith. And I almost like want to go, hey, man, do you like do Kundalini yoga? And I get the feeling that no, not all Sikh people necessarily do Kundalini yoga. It, it's almost like um, a lot of the, the official people that were born Sikh, you know, they, they're in the, in the earlier days, they they aren't that fond of us as practitioner of kundalini yoga we're kind of a unique sect you know but yet at the same time very cosmic you know that if it's real you're you know we can relate to i i feel very lucky i can relate to anybody you know i feel like it's weird how my life has turned i'm in the middle of hollywood in this class where i have people that are you know, like rocking rocker people. And then I have people that are like conservative housewives and I have little kids that come in and 
I had people that are pregnant and I had people like, I mean, don't you see that? It's weird, isn't it? It's very diverse. Yeah. And it's all races. It's all like nationalities. It's all sizes. It's all shapes. And sometimes when I don't have enough of one race, I start calling them because I feel like, you know, oh, we need more Chinese people. And for a while, I was like, oh, we need more black people. And then I was like, okay, we need more men now. And then I finally gave up and I went, okay, you just send whoever you want. <laughs> I don't care. But uh, I think it's really funny. It is. Yeah. And it's a very, it's a very, um, I don't know. It's interesting because it's, it's something that's so kind of eclectic. Yeah. It's, it's a very eclectic crowd, but at the same time, it's, it's very open. It's very not. Accepted. Yeah, it's just, I don't find it to be like clicky and there's not like the cool kids at class and then the uncool kids and the nerds, <laughs> you know, the nerds and the jocks, you know, that paradigm from high school. It's like everyone just kind of is together, but at the same time, fiercely independent and seem to just do their own thing. You know, I hang out with some people from class, but it doesn't seem like there's any particular pressure to to hang out more or to hang out less. It's very inclusive, which to it's me- It's kind of flowing, like the wind. It is, yeah. You know? To me, like the, the when something's inclusive like that, it's a sign that there's some real truth there because they're, you know, other than just paying for the space and making sure the teacher doesn't starve, there doesn't even seem to be a real monetary incentive. It's not like you're trying to build a multinational corporation and like bleed people of all their money so that they can become enlightened. You know, it's just, it's just it's very cool the way it's presented. And I really appreciate that it is so inclusive and open and, and so diverse. Yes. Yeah, I try to keep everything pretty down to earth. I mean, as much as possible. You know? Yeah. And, and you, you're talking before about, you know, just our brain in our head and in our thoughts and something that I really noticed from the practice is that it has such a profound effect on my mind and I'm someone that's suffered in my life from a lot of neurosis and just you know a lot of drug abuse and things early in my life where I have to work so hard to kind of just keep my head in a positive space and a, in a place of clarity and purity and there's something about the mantras and and the movements that we do and the breathing, I swear it's like, it feels like a science, it's so scientifically perfect the way that it affects my mind and, and my emotions. And some of the Kriyas involve so many different movements at once where you're doing a, a breath pattern and then you're doing a mantra silently in your mind and then both your hands are doing something different and your feet are doing something and you're doing this multi-dexterous kind of really interesting, I don't know, movements and breathing with your body. And I, I just, I can feel my brain being rewired when I'm in the middle of class. I mean, I really feel like something is happening to me. I don't feel like it. It is happening to me. As I said, you know, I walk out of there in such a different space. I know there, there's this man in class and he has, he's an older, not real old, but kind of mid-age. And he has a mother who She's got a lot of problems and she's always calling him up from a different state and like throwing him off. And he gets all like neurotic and freaked out because she's always threatening to kill her. You know how it goes on and on. So um, he said to me one day, he goes, it's weird how this science works. He goes, you put your hand a certain way, you focus on a certain thing, you start breathing and then you leave and you feel better. <laughs> he goes, I can't figure it out. And I go, it's pretty mysterious. Yeah, it, it's so it's so mysterious. And it's it's just strange because from the outside, I think if I were to, you know, just walk up to your average guy on the street and say like, hey, let me show you this cool Kriya that I do. You breathe like this. You say these words. I don't even know the language. I don't know what it means. But you hum and you breathe and you move. And then your brain is different. I mean, it's it's really hard to explain to someone unless you have the subjective experience personally. Yeah, really. 
of doing it. You know, it looks very like woo woo and it looks like bullshit from one perspective, to be honest. You know, it's like, what's that going to do? You know, but if you if you like last night, I was watching this show on Netflix called um, The Cosmos, and they're just talking about all these galaxies and universes and just the majesty of this thing called creation. And I'm looking at that going, if you tried to explain that to someone, you couldn't explain it either. You know, it's like even when someone is explaining it, it's just beyond our level of apprehension and comprehension. And I, and I feel like the Kundalini is the same way. You can't really explain it. It has to be experienced. And until it is it really makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I've had people over the years saying, I'm gonna come in class and I'm gonna sit in the back and just watch. And I go, no. And I go, this is not a spectator sport. This is a, a participatory uh, process. And I said, you have to be in it. Like you have to go in the water to get wet. You can't just sit on the beach and look at the water and think, well, I wonder what it feels like to be out there. What it feels like to be in the water. You have to go in it, you know? It's really important. But the other point that um, what you're saying kind of is something I feel like is really important is that don't try to, like, this is a stage that people go through when they start healing with anything. They walk around, they're like, you got to do this. You got to try this. This guy's the best. This teacher's the best. And it's really, in my opinion, better to just be. Like, get your auric field bright, heal yourself, learn your mind, learn your relationship to the ethers learn what works, you know, learn the download that works for you. And it's going to change all the time. And it, it doesn't have to be that you have to go out and proselytize. We don't believe in proselytizing. You just be. And then two things will happen. One, your auric field actually can go in a room with you, like around you, and it can affect everybody. It can make the whole room better. That's why people over the years, I would watch it. We'd go to India with my teacher and then people would just like come and try to crowd and be near him because they want to get the, the energy, feel it. Because he was very healing and it's it just his auric field. And then uh, the other thing is, is that if you, if like if you have friends that know you, that have known you since you were like, you went sober at 26 and they watch you through the different stages and then they watch you now since you started maturing and you're on a path now. You're on a path to bring consciousness to people. And you're doing it in different ways. You do it through your teaching of your uh, stylist school. I know you teach people then. You do it through your lifestyle change. You do it through your podcast. But you do it really nicely because you don't try to change people. You just are. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, there's no, (laughs) there's no better way to turn someone off to something good than to try to push it on them. You know, it's like it's like when I went through the early stages of learning all about health and all of these different herbs and superfoods and, you know, just becoming free of all these physical ailments that I had and just physical problems and sickness. And I started to become really healthy and robust. So I wanted to go around and like police everyone and tell them what to eat and what not to eat. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily lost friends over that, but I came close and I had to learn how to just mind my own business and Maybe then someone notices like, wow, Luke, I have a cold every, you know, a couple months in the winter and you haven't had a cold in 10 years. <laughs> How did you do that? You know, so it's like, I don't really share my information until somebody asks. So I th- I remember Yogi Bushin telling us one time, he goes, don't give advice to somebody until they beg you. Like even like three times, make them beg you. Like if somebody walks up and go, hey, what's going on? You know, great. You know, wow, you seem different. What's going on? Yeah, yeah, things are good. 
and then just be. And then if it's their destiny, they'll they'll follow you. They'll watch you, and they'll sit, go, "Oh, he's up to something. Ah, oh, maybe I'll try that." Yeah, I think at the root of that is that need to control other people. That's what I've found in myself is the people around me. It's like I've wanted to at times control them and get them to do what I do and. And that is just... Well, I mean, it's a good... You do it from a good feeling point. I mean, you do it from a good heartedness because you, you know, we care about people and we really feel at the points that this will fi- fix them, it'll help them. But everybody's got their own journey. The other thing that I found too is that like, let's say, you know, you're vegetarian and you're this and you're that and you're vegan and, uh, and how you go about it. I mean, some people go about it with this really heavy, like police attitude, like you were saying. And then it becomes such a nightmare to be around that person because they're so like so strict and so controlling and so critical. And you feel like, I can't just be. And then it's so, even if you do exactly what they're doing, if you do it with that really heavy attitude of criticism and you know fear base, it, it doesn't do the healing. It's really important that uh, we stay with the spirit all the time. And, and there will be times when you're like, I just really got to go have you know, a cheese sandwich. (laughs) I'm vegan and I've been, you know, really no gluten, but I really got to have a cheese sandwich, you know? And so like the, you know, we got to be kind of free flowing sometimes because maybe your body needs something in it. Maybe your mind just needs to know that you're not going to like take it over and drive it over a cliff without thinking. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think it's so much healthier to just allow, at least for me to allow myself some forgiveness and some leeway in terms of everything. You know, there were so many years where I was trying to be trying to be perfect and holding myself up to this standard. And if, you know, an old habit came back or, you know, I would try to quit smoking and then I'd relapse on smoking or I'd quit smoking and then bite my fingernails or something. And, you know, I'd be so hard on myself because I, I held myself up to this high ideal and really made unrealistic expectations on myself. And I find the more sort of open and forgiving I am with myself now and like taking myself less seriously too, you know, that's like, you're not that important, dude. It's, you know, you just do the best you can and you, you live and let live, you let other people have their path. And if they're interested in what you're doing, you share it, but the proselytizing to others and even trying to police myself and be so rigid about what I do and don't do. You know, there's sometimes you just kind of have to let go a little bit. Yeah, humor helps. Yeah, it does. That's one thing I like about your classes a lot is that you don't take yourself too seriously. I know when I'm looking at a spiritual teacher and they don't smile and they don't laugh, that they're in their ego. You know, to me, ego is very serious. You know, when you meet a serious person, to me, that's like a dangerous person. Someone who's just dead on serious all the time. Oh, there's days I'm like that. <laughs> there are days when I, I go in there and I lay into people. But Whoa. that's but it's the energy flow. It's like it has some reason has to happen. Some days I've gone in there and I've been so heavy and I think nobody will ever want to come back to class. And then people come up to me afterwards and they're like, thank you, we needed that today. So it's not all a hippy dippy thing. I mean, it is a serious thing that we're working on. You know, you've worked, they say you've gone 8.4 million lifetimes. That's a lot of lifetimes to come to this one where the spirit can now start to evolve and open. And and so I take that really seriously. And I watch, I try to watch my emotions and my mind because like you said earlier, you know, you go, you said something about, 
you know, there's days when I just have to watch my mind more. There are days like that. You know, being on a spiritual path, it's like walking, you know, on a tightrope. And that some people call it the razor's edge. And you can easily fall either way. But it's it's really, it's just so fantastic. Because there are going to be days when it's a shadow day. And and I remember somebody called it the dark night of the soul. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. You're going to go through that. And then there are going to be times when you're just so elevated, but just keep up. Find some practice that's meaningful. That's why I like people to meditate and keep doing the meditation and repeating it over and over. Because all the old junk that you were taught and all the criticism, the nastiness can come up and leave and disappear. And that's what meditation can help you with. So then the soul can shine out past that dark night. But it's a matter of just keeping up and doing a practice, but doing it, you know, with with not criticism and killing yourself, just, I'm going to do it. There are days when I go, I have meditation I'm doing right now, and I go, I'm not going to do it tonight. And I go, oh, shut up. Yes, you are. (laughs) That's something else that's uh, interesting to me about the practice is that I think a lot of people have the idea that a meditation is sitting still and being quiet for a certain period of time, which I also practice. Um, called Vedic meditation, which is, you know, a set aside sort of householders thing, similar to TM, repeating a mantra silently. I love that. You just dip into this place of nothingness and emptiness, which is really profound and beautiful sometimes. And uh, that's been very beneficial. But in the Kundalini practice, there are meditations where you do a lot of stuff. And that's also a meditation, which I think is interesting because most people have a preconceived idea that you're sitting there, oh, and you're just, you know, being still and quiet, where a meditation in Kundalini could be actually quite active and in some cases even vigorous, I would say. Well, a lot of those series that Yogi Bhajan gave that we do during the workshops, because you can't really do the, the series during, um, you know, during, a class because you only have you have a format that you have to be in and you have to be in and out a certain time but what a lot of times we'll give those workshops you know you've been in a few and like we'll have three hours so it, we can take some of the really heavy deep stuff that yogi bhajan would do but if you ever study them they're all varied and even like there, we did a rebirthing whole series this weekend where you got rid of all the memory stuff transit memories and cross memories and he was saying the cross memories are from past life stuff. And he, he goes, there's so many things that are clogged in there in your memory banks. And you should have seen like what he did. It was like so interesting. Like every 15 minutes, every five minutes, every three minutes, a different song, a different like like classical music and whistling and then moving the hands up and down. And by the time we got done, like this whole lightness came around everybody. And that didn't, you know, like that had a section in there where you went deep, quiet enchanted for a while but then the gong came on and it's so varied it's incredible that that master like that that's what keeps it interesting i always think about you in your class it's almost like you're a dj like i'm always i'll be in the mantra or the meditation and i don't peek but i really want to like look up there and be like what is she doing how does she know to get the next song ready and it's always like the perfect tempo and you know like the song to match the mantra that's in that set and it's actually quite you're quite the maestro and there's really a lot involved in that because I'll put myself in that position like 
What if Tej just walked out and was like, Luke, you take this one, you know, what would I do? It's like you have your magic iPod with all your mantras. And it's 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 really fascinating, actually, to to be in that flow, you know, and, and yeah, watch and really, watch that rhythm. It's what, so cool. More than that, too. What when you start getting into this next phase where you lose yourself and you let the teachership come through. Do you understand? Like we take that that uh, teacher's oath. And it and it's, goes like this. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm not a person. I'm not myself. I am a teacher. And so you go into a, a space where you have to just let the teacher energy come through. Like you have to just be like, whatever I want, whatever I need, it's like out the window. And you really move into it. And what happens after a while is your, your arc field connects to this really huge golden flow, they call it the golden flow of teachers. And the more that I teach, the more that my, like I go through phases, like I'm deepening now, right now, my heart center goes through the room and I can feel people and I can feel, it's, it's not like I think about it, there's no thought involved, but I can feel where somebody is locked somewhere and then the energy, I don't think about it, the energy will go there and it will shake it and it will lift it and then it will go around the room and then do another space. And I think I just watch it, I go, hmm. So the more sensitive that um, I can become to this and the more I can surrender to it, the better. But then on the other hand, you got to keep everything together. You know, like you have to like pay the bills and stop the clock at the right time. And (laughs) so it's a lot of juggling the ethers and the earth at the same time. That's the cool thing about it. You can go way on the ethers, but you can stay earthbound (laughs) and we have to. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's what I'm finding in my life now as an entrepreneur. I'm a businessman. I, I own this school. I'm I'm starting this new business now, which of which the par- podcast is a part. And there were times where I had less responsibility in my life. And I mean, I'll go to the park and meditate all day and do yoga and read spiritual books and listen to spiritual audiobooks. And I mean, I was so free because I had less responsibility and I grew a lot spiritually. But what yeah, I but find- see, that was your training period. Okay. Like, like that's what happens. I see at the studio, there'll be yeah. people that like for a year or something, they just come to class a lot and they come every day sometimes. And sometimes they come twice a day and they work on themselves. They work on their health. They keep going. And then all of a sudden, bam, the door, that door is shut and a new door to the next phase opens. And then you, sometimes I don't see them at all. And sometimes I see them a little bit, but their whole life is different. It's on a different track. And my my request to people is no matter what phase you're in, keep meditating and see if you can come to class some, you know. It's the the thing is is that what'll happen is people will come to class when they're crying and they're falling apart. They need an ego structure to help them be able to stand tall, be okay. And then they'll come to do the yoga and then then they start feeling better and then they're like, Why do I need this? I don't need this. I'm fine. And then they leave, and yet they it didn't integrate in them yet. So then they come back like sometimes six months, sometimes a year later, and they go, I don't know why I stopped coming, because I don't feel good. And then they'll take one class, and they'll go, wow, I feel so much better. And I'll go, just come to class. Like, put in your life somewhere. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be your whole entire life, but at some points it is for a while. Yeah, I think, I think that you're, you're right. It is sometimes a stage that one goes through. And, you know, in my life now, I, I love going to yoga and I go a few days a week, but then I really have to come home and get shit done. You know, it's like there's people that are counting on me and people need to get paid. And I have a life that 
I want to bring that spiritual energy into, and that's my contribution to the world. So there is this balance, like you're saying, of, you know, having your feet on the ground and your head in the clouds kind of at the same time. Well, the way to look at it, I mean, this will help you. You know, they, like, in our in our religion, my, my religion, the philosophy behind it, they say, earn by the sweat of your brow and share with others. But you should offer two and a half hours every day to your spiritual growth. So... That's why there's a practice of the Amrit Vela, the sadhana time, between three and six in the morning. Because at that time, they say that the spirits in the ethers, the holy people on the earth and the bodies, they leave the body, they go to those who are meditating. And so you get kind of like a supercharge at that time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it, even like some people, that's really extreme to meditate at that time. But if you can just meditate every day, <laughs> Like come to class some and then meditate some and then make sure that you do something where you're offering. It, it's really not even like you're offering your spirit. It's more like you're you're opening up a clear channel through you. And you need to reestablish that link every single day. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so it's just a matter of like figuring out how you can fit that into your schedule. Speaking of fitting things into your schedule, you have this staggering... Uh, amount of work that you do. So you teach seven days a week in the morning, then you have two night classes and three. then you three night classes. Oh yeah, that's right. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. One day meditation class. Yeah. And then on Mondays, the meditation, and then you're doing all these weekend retreats all the time and teacher training. I mean, it's like, it is staggering to watch your schedule. Yeah. The workshops are, they, they put me through a lot. So how, how do you, you know, and, and it's part of this tradition too, for people that haven't taken, you know, a class in this, in this style of yoga, that the teacher doesn't do the yoga along with you because you have to kind of keep your head together in order to run the structure of the class, right? Yeah. You know, it's really funny. You know, we do, I started that meditation before class at prosperity meditation, which has been really interesting to watch. So I started it. And then about probably like 30 people got really a lot of work, a lot of jobs, and they disappeared. And I've been watching it. And it's good, though. It's some people who really, really needed money. And now I don't know what they're going to do. I'm just watching the next phase for that. Yeah. But some days I, I will do the meditation with everybody. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're only doing it 11 minutes. But all of a sudden, it's like 11 minutes and 30 seconds. And I come out of it and I look down and I go, <gasps> So I have to be really careful because I can leave my body in a split second. So what I try to do is I do some practice at home in the mornings and at night. And then I just, then I just go teach. And the teaching is also really a huge practice for me. And when we do teacher training, even if I've taught the same subject every single time, it's new for me. And then when we, what we do on the teacher training weekends and different weekends, we actually offer some workshops for people. So it becomes like this like massive like lightning bolt coming into the room and everybody is pulling their energy together and everybody's transforming so huge. Because what they say, they go, this is what really taught me a lot when Yogi Bhajan said this one day, because he used to say, like, stay in the company of the holy, like be with the congregation. He said, in the Aquarian age, we have to be with people. We can't be like the lone wolf, you know, that attitude. And I used to be that kind of person. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just stayed in my home and I, I did, I worked on the archives all the time. I always worked on the teachings and I never would talk to people. 
And then all of a sudden, one day I was standing there looking out of a window and I heard Yogi Bhajan and he came and said, this won't happen like this for much longer. And I was like, what? <laughs> I've been in this room for 10 years straight, transcribing and writing up meditations. And I'm like, what? And he goes, no, no, it's going to change. And so I, I said to him mentally, I go, okay, sir, you're going to have to change it. I'm not doing anything. And really, literally within a couple of months, everything was different. He plucked me out of there and I was working at a yoga center and I was starting to teach. And it was like, I had to talk to people. That was a big shock. I bet it was. Well, listen, I appreciate that he did that because it gave us an opportunity to talk to you today and it's still carrying on and you're still talking. And I'm very grateful for that and your tireless efforts. Uh, as we end the show today, Tej, I want to ask you for three recommendations for books, teachers, teachings, something that has helped you along the way that you might recommend that someone can go pick up on Amazon or a CD or a mantra. Okay, so... A good place to start, your top three. The book that I recommend is by Yogi Bhajan's secretary, and it's called Kundalini Yoga, and then it says colon, The Flow of Eternal Power. And it's a paperback book, and it's kind of yellow with a blue, like light blue stripe, you know, around it and stuff. Different. And her name is Shakti... Parwa Kar Khalsa, and they have it on Amazon. Um, I I feel like it's sort of like Kundalini Yoga for dummies, and it, it's funny, it's sarcastic, it explains all the different areas, it lightly goes through all the, the the rituals, like what they mean, the mantras, and I feel like it's a really good book to start with. Okay, number two, Yogi Bhajan's videos are now they put them online which is incredible. I mean, like there are hundreds and hundreds of Yogi Bhajan teaching class. And so it's called the Library of the Teachings. If you just Google search it, you know, Library of the Teachings, Yogi Bhajan, it'll come up. And there, the transcripts are not well done. They're, they were transcribed by someone in India, some people in India that don't know English and can't hear things well. But that, it's okay because they have the DVD with it. So you can actually take a class from Yogi Bhajan. And I've had the personal experience where transmission came out of the, the DVD right into me, like several times. And so I know that you can connect to the master's energy. I think that's so exciting. You know? And then the last thing, there, I, I'm a big fan of this one meditation that's called Conquering Self-Animosity, because I feel like the biggest problem that everybody has is they don't believe in themselves. I think that's the problem in this world right now. That people are taught to see themselves as a, in a little box down person that not really who they are. And I really feel like um, that's one of the most important things to work on. Your self-esteem. Feeling that you are, you are great, but you're not going to over... Like, it's not an insecurity system going into a, a superiority complex. It's, it's like you just feeling relaxed in yourself, feeling like I'm not perfect, but I'm just happy and I'm trying my best. And I go like this, okay, Guru Ram Das, Yogi Bhajan, I'm just here, use me, use my body, use my, my personality. I'm not perfect, I'm doing the best I can, help me keep up. And then it just helps me keep up when I think like that. So it's like connecting to that flow. So any kind of meditation that you can do that will help you release the self-esteem issues 
where you stop your negative chatter, you understand what I'm saying. You have to just stop. Like if you are going around during a day and you're feeling really shit, should I say that word? <laughs> Crappy about yourself. You can say whatever you want. And then you have all these mental like mantras going on, like I'm no good, and she's skinnier than me, and they have a better house than me, and blah 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 blah. If you just go shut up, and then you go ang sang wa hey guru, that mantra will stop the negative thoughts. So it's ah, uh, say it with me, ang sang wa hey guru. Sometimes you have to just say it like a million times a minute. I've had I've had days where I'm just unsung wahegooing the whole <laughs> the whole day. That you are tripping me out right now because one of the questions I was going to ask you was why that mantra gets stuck in my head a lot. Unsung wahegooo. There's a song, yeah. right? That's got yeah. that melody. I find myself out of all, and I have like a master Spotify Kundalini mantra list. I mean, there's, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of songs, but that one gets stuck in my head more than any other. And what you just described of the self-doubt and low self-worth is something that I've been like working on for so, so many years of just kind of owning my worth and value as a person, as an entity here. And you know what? It's okay. Like, because everybody's like that. You went through a lot. You understand it from a really deep point of view. And because of that, you sincerely are working to elevate yourself and you will be able to now transmit that ability to others. You understand? Now, the Aung San Waigudu, they say that whenever a mantra is going through your head, it means that your brain is taking the bake, the support of that mantra and needs it like food. It, like, it needs it. And that one's by Sat Kartar. On, uh, I think she has an album called Listen, I think. But that particular one I like a lot. It's kind of catchy, you know. And uh, if you just just pick a mantra, I play. I have seven mantras in my house playing. One in the two in the living room, two in the bedroom, one in the office, two in the kitchen, and one of them in the kitchen has like a rotating. It goes over seven other mantras. And so some people like they just have mantras playing everywhere in your house. Guru Joss, who's like this really beautiful young woman who uh, lives out in Santa Monica, and she teaches at that Rama Institute. Cause so like we, I feel like we're sister brother sister sister you know yoga studios i have nine treasures yoga she there they have rama out in venice i go out and teach there thursday nights but like she she decided one day and i, I mean i can't handle this but she overlapped because she has a husband who's a computer nerd and they overlap like about 35 mantras into one and they play them in the bedroom and she's he i asked one day i go can you sleep with this he goes, yeah, if we ever go out of town and like we're in a hotel on the way to Solstice or something, I can't sleep without it. But it sounds like aliens. It's really... <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not really into it that much, but she just wanted to get all the vibrations of all the mantras in her with as fast as she could. So she does that. She also has a little um, recorder uh, um, laptop that she keeps in the corner of her living room. And she keeps um, Yogi Bhajan classes playing constantly over and over and over so that his vibration is vibrating out through their their home. And now she got pregnant. She's going to have a baby in about a month and a half. And we're all waiting to see what that baby's going to be like. The baby's going to be born knowing mantras, right? It's going to like come out of the womb singing a mantra. Well, I appreciate those, those last three tips. And before we close out, where can we find you and what you do, Tage? Okay, so because of the ninth guru and the way that he sacrificed for all 
religions, all way of life to be respected. Uh, we call our yoga center Nine Treasures Yoga because they say that if you meditate on that ninth guru, the nine treasures shall run to you. And they're all aspects from, you know, to money, to physical, like jewels, to real estate, I mean, and, and all those theoric powers as well. So um, I have a place called NineTreasuresYoga.com. You can look and see where we are. At some point, we're going to have to move. But right now, I'm in Hollywood on Crescent Heights and Sunset, the corner, in a, uh, in a, a karate studio. Which is one of my favorite places to be. And it is now 5.48 in the evening. I know we've got to get you out of here because I'm coming to your class at 6.15 tonight. So thank you so much for, uh, for all your diligence and hard work and for joining us on the show today. Now, thank you for uh, your commitment to trying to help people like understand themselves from a deeper level. It's beautiful. So I applaud you and say Satnam. Satnam. And that concludes another enlightening episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I'd love for you to share this show with a friend. Click on share somewhere on your app, somewhere on your screen right now, and send this to a friend or loved one who's interested in furthering their own evolution. And I'd also love for you to subscribe to this show so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes, not the least of which being next week's episode number 13 with author John Gray, who wrote a little book you might have heard of called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And we'll be talking all about relationships, love, sex, all of those things that make the world go around. So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. And as I said, please forward this to a friend or loved one so we can keep this thing going. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you on the next show. Today's show is proudly sponsored by Fountain of Truth Spring Water, the only source of fresh, raw spring water delivered in chilled glass jugs to your doorstep. Sourced from legendary Opal Springs in Oregon, Fountain of Truth Spring Water is loaded with the four primary electrolytes, is naturally alkaline, filled with the Earth's probiotics, and is abundant in the rare beauty mineral silica. Home delivery is currently available to most areas on the west coast of the United States. 